I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here today to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. What happens at school committee meetings has big implications for our students, our city, and our state. And this podcast shines a light on the decisions our leaders are making. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good. We had about a five and a half hour meeting last night. It's pretty good. Yeah, it was a little long. Um, It's been a week, Ross, since last school committee meeting. And during this week, Boston has voted in a new mayor. Unbelievable. That's right, Jill. Uh, Michelle Wu won Tuesday night's election with 64% of the vote. And we also elected new city councilors across Boston. It was a truly historical election. The first elected woman, the first elected person of color, and Mayor-elect Wu will come into office with a big mandate to lead. Poll after poll, Jill, are showing that the biggest issue confronting the new mayor is the quality of Boston schools. In response to this, we heard from both acting mayor uh, Janie and Mayor-elect Wu at the beginning of last night's meeting. And their commitment to improving our schools was heard loud and clear. Yeah, that's that was nice because we haven't heard from a mayor at Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting for a while. That's right. It was good. And bo- had to have both Mayor uh, Janie and Mayor-elect Wu at the meeting was, I, th- I thought, a really important statement about the importance of education in Boston. Yeah, it was great. So that wasn't the only vote on Tuesday with big implications for our schools. There was also a non-binding ballot initiative known as Question 3, asking voters whether they would prefer an elected school committee over the current system under which the members are appointed by the mayor. Ross, the message from the vote was very clear, don't you think? Uh, very clear, Jill. I mean, we're talking about 80, almost 80% of voters. Right. That's about 100,000 Bostonians voted in favor of an elected school committee. Right. Let's just a reminder, the current school committee is appointed by the mayor and has been for the last 30 years. Right. Um, and now, in, in a non-binding vote, almost 80% of voters said they want an elected committee. And previously, in, in the polling, it was voting at about 60% favorability, and then it came out to be 80% in yeah. the in, in this vote. So so what happens now, right? So basically, there's a clear mandate saying we want an elected school committee. Now, we got to be clear. There's only two choices on the ballot. He was yeah. either elected or appointed. There was no sort of hybrid or middle ground here. Right. Um, and now it's going to be up to Mayor-elect Wu and the city council to decide whether to move forward with a home rule petition. Um, and then if they did a home rule petition around changing the makeup of the committee or how you become a committee member from appointed to elected, that would require sign-off from the legislature and then ultimately the governor. Uh, but with such an overwhelming majority calling for this reform, it's sort of hard for a new mayor to ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. And Mayor-elect Wu was not pro a fully elected committee or a fully appointed committee. She was actually a proponent of a majority elected hybrid school committee. Um, And that option wasn't even on the ballot. So it'll be interesting to see what she decides to do and how she takes action on this. And Jill, this can happen within the next number of months. I mean, this can happen in as few as six months uh, to get this done. So this is like on the horizon, there's going to be massive change on the Boston School Committee. Well, this brings us to last night's school committee meeting, and that meeting opened with comments from several school committee members addressing the outcome of the vote on question three. Chair Jerry Robinson and members Ernani DeRugio and Lorena LaPera all seemed to recognize the will of the voters, pointing out that the committee needs to do a better job of engaging with and communicating with the public. 
but two of the other members didn't seem as accepting of the vote. Here's Mr. Tran. Without having concrete evidence uh, before before us, um, but I do suspect that one of the factors driving the uh, decision on that referendum uh, may have been the uh, perceived or misperceived uh, notion that we serve at the pleasure because we serve at the pleasure of the uh, of the mayor. Then we are pretty much uh, beholden to the mayor on 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 all issues. And his comments were followed by these from Vice Chair O'Neill. Said there is no uh, research showing that an appointed or an elected committee is better in either way, um, but each have their strengths. And uh, um, he has also said that elected committees um, do tend um, to be better perceived by the community as listening to the community. and. Appointed committees uh, tend to have more of a strategic vision. So, Ross, it seems like Mr. Tran is saying that 80 percent of the voters voted for an elected school committee because they might be misinformed about how the current system works. And Vice Chair O'Neill is saying that people may feel that an elected committee would better represent their voice, while the appointed committee may seem disconnected, but is actually better at running the system. Yeah. So, Jill, I don't who knows what the voters, you know, true intent was or what they were thinking, except that almost 80 percent of voters said we want an elected committee. We want a committee that represents the will of of the voters, of the public. And we've talked about this, Jill, over and over and over again on this podcast where there's a disconnect between what the public is saying during public comment and what the school committee is holding the school department accountable for. Right. And I think that disconnect, you can't really uh, discount that disconnect. Well, to your point about the disconnect, I mean, Vice Chair O'Neill went then on to say, thank you to the superintendent for setting up three meetings to discuss the decision to close three schools that have already been recommended to school committee to be voted on for closing. So essentially missing the point that the public was making with this vote about an elected school committee versus an appointed school committee. So I really appreciate the superintendent, for example, on this issue, announcing a number of community meetings and listening to individual school communities. You know, Jill, public process after a decision has already been made is not a public process. It's theater. And this was the primary topic of discussion last night beginning with the superintendent's report and continuing through public comment. So Jill, let's start the superintendent's report last night. So essentially the superintendent talked about wanting to go back and actually revisit, you know, Mm. those schools that, you know, if you remember the last meeting, the superintendent said there wasn't going to be a sixth grade at the Blackstone, at the Mendel, and at the Sumner schools. And now she's saying, well, we kind of need to go back to those schools and we're going to do walkthroughs to make sure we're making the best decision. Right. And the reason she's going back, honestly, is really because she heard a lot of public comments about this issue and concern about this issue. And she said, look, look we got to take things into consideration. It's going to be difficult. There may be trade-offs, but we're going to listen and talk with all the school communities. And we're actually going to have three meetings, one with each of these school communities to talk about, is there a possibility of adding 
a sixth grade prior to their vote uh, at the next meeting around closing the Timothy Irving and Jackson Mann schools. Mm -hmm. The superintendent also had an update on the school choice um, process, which is just starting in a few weeks where we're going to open up school choice for our kindergarten students all the way through grade 12 and students choosing schools in the system. And it's actually interesting. The superintendent said that the school lists this year, the data that will be used for performance, they're going to use 2019 uh, school quality data versus data from this past year or the past two years. Yeah, but because they didn't like the data. Right. She said, the superintendent said in previous um, school committee meetings that while we have MCAS data and other performance data, she doesn't like it. Yeah. It is, it may not be accurate because it's maybe not may not have tested 100% of students. Mm. Um, there was a bridge testing. And of course, the pandemic impacted students' performance. And so the superintendent right. did say we're going to use uh, 2019 data for that. And then lastly, you know, on a pretty big deal, the we're losing two really important key members of central office. Yeah. Um, so the superintendent said farewell to Monica Roberts, who has been the lead of engagement in their school system for for quite a long time and is often, you know, is sort of the right-hand woman of the superintendent on community engagement processes. And uh, Xavier Andrews, who's our communications director, is also leaving the district. Yeah, it's interesting. And that brings us to public comment from last night, where we heard from dozens of Boston parents who are frustrated about the lack of direction, communication, and transparency from the district, and they're worried about where their children are going to attend school. Here's a parent from the Sumner School in particular, which we highlighted last week as the only Roslindale Elementary School that will not be getting a sixth grade. The, the Sumner community, the parents could have told you, hey, um, system-wide decisions have hollowed out the Irving. Um, you know, there's a focus on seven to 12 and that, that's fine. But the fact is that's gonna steer students away from elementary schools. And in fact, engaged families are trying to avoid that grades five, six, and seven at different schools, avoid that scenario early on, way before they even get to fifth grade. So that hollows out the Irving. You know, the writing has been on the wall about the Irving since before my child even got involved in the Sumner over four years ago. So you know, I really feel like, you know, if you don't understand the context of some of these situations, please talk to us. You know, that there, there, there needs to be a dialogue. And... Here's another comment on the Sumner from City Councilor Julia Mejia. This is an ongoing issue we're seeing across Boston Public Schools, and it has come to a head, particularly when it comes to the Sumner. Parents of the Sumner have had been led to believe that each of uh, each of the four Rosendale Elementary Schools would be getting a sixth grade. However, that all changed last week when parents at the Sumner School received an email saying that they that wouldn't be the case. This was the first time in over a year that parents at the Sumner had been contacted regarding the sixth grade um, plan. Keeping in good communication with parents is essential, not just because parents rely on information to make the best decisions as possible for the children, but because it is the responsibility of Boston Public Schools to earn and keep the trust of our community. And it wasn't just Sumner parents. This was a consistent theme we heard from parents across the city. Here's a parent from the Blackstone, which is also being denied a sixth grade. Como madre, siento inquietud y preocupación de dónde irán a estudiar nuestros hijos. As a mother, I am concerned of where my, our children are going to end up going to school at. Ya que VPS va a cerrar las escuelas intermedias, Timothy, 
Irving y la Jason May, mientras que la Escuela Blaston, la Sumner y la Mendel no tendrá aula de sexto grado. Because BPS is going to be closing the, the, um, the middle schools and the students of the Sounders schools will not have um, a sixth grade. Ross, there were so many public comments that effectively said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Where are my kids going to go to school? What is missing is a leader who has cultivated a relationship with the community and with leaders in the community who can help her and help school committee be transparent about decisions that need to be made because the district is shrinking. Ms. Robinson started the evening out by talking about a district of 52,000 students. We understand that it's really more like 48,000 students, and so it's very important to get these details right if you're also trying to communicate why certain schools need to be shut down. It's unlikely that folks will feel good about their school losing traction, losing grades, being shut down entirely, but if this is presented with empathy in the context of a master plan, then at least families might better understand why decisions are being made. Committee member Lorena LaPera talks about this in her comments to the superintendent. Um, I think one of the pieces that I haven't heard too much more about, um, so we've heard about visiting schools that could potentially, um, that aren't slated right now to have additional sixth grade in their mix, uh, which I appreciate that uh, continued evaluation and community engagement. I think the part that I'm still uh, have questions around is the proposed uh, expansion of some of the seven to 12 um, schools. As I mentioned at our last meeting, I really want to understand how um, the quality of the academics, um, academic opportunities that exist in those schools um, is a part of the, the thinking process around expansion in those schools. And so that's really my my only question. The other pieces, I know we're still working with community, um, but I want to understand how some of the proposed seven to twelves um, can really be a viable pathway for students and families. Yeah, that's good questioning. Um, and we are working right now with the impacted schools, and then we will outline the process for our remainder of our high schools and the remainder of our K-5s. As we shared in the presentation last week, we also know that this could impact our K-8s. And so we don't wanna be doing those three things piecemeal. We wanna come out with a full plan. Um, and so we'll be doing that engagement work with the community over the next couple of months. Great, I, and I just wanna reiterate, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter because I may not be here, um, but should I be in this position, I think it would be really important for me to understand what that holistic plan looks like um, prior to uh, making a decision on any school closures. Um, it might be a, a moot point, but it's something that I feel uh, should be on the record um, for how I'm thinking about grade configuration. So Jill, a master plan is really the thing that would tie this together. This is what the superintendent, her team, and the school committee need in order to be transparent about the moves they are making and really to address the declining enrollment of the district long term. And what we heard around the decision making of the school department last week was that they were making decisions really temporarily. They're mm. adding temporary classrooms. There, there's no real plan long-term for pathways for kids. And then we even heard from the superintendent that there may be some upcoming meetings to present a longer-term plan. Well, that needs to come before 
we make these decisions about school closure and adding grade levels and so on. Well, right, because context is important. Absolutely. So there were two votes last night. The first was about giving the superintendent temporary flexibility of the assignment policy governing advanced work class, which is a fading program in BPS. All members voted in favor of giving the superintendent flexibility, except for Mr. DiRuggio, who said this. You highlighted a piece that uh, I think is critical for me that uh, we have this emphasis on making sure that we provide um, rigorous curriculum across, you know, across our schools. Uh, and I, I worry that uh, the flexibility piece, we're just kind of rolling it, we're rolling it forward. Uh, I think they're, they're, the curriculums are out there. I think we can do this. Um, so that, that was a concern that I expressed at a, a prior meeting as well, that how does this fit into that, that bigger picture? So Jill, advanced work classes is actually has dwindled down to just, I think, a few classrooms around the city at this point. And the Excellence for All program, which we've touched upon in the past, is supposed to have replaced advanced work class in every school. Mm -hmm. So that, in, in fact, every student in grade four and grade five would have Excellence for All, which is a high rigor, um, high expectations program. For everyone. For everybody. And the problem right. is, you know, that... We, we don't have that expanded yet. There is no plan for how to have excellence for all in every, in every school. Right. And so this relates to the theme we heard all night is like, how does this fit into the bigger picture? Right. The second vote moving on uh, last night was to approve the performance goals by which the superintendent's performance will be judged. This vote was quick and it was unanimous. I think it was over in about five minutes, but as we talked about last week, these goals weren't very specific or very measurable. Jill, this is something near and dear to my heart. Smart goals, <laughs> right. uh, specific, measurable, attainable <laughs> goals. And, you know, the school committee says this is the most important job they have as right. a school committee is to uh, is to evaluate the superintendent. Um, every teacher, every central office staff member in BPS is expected to set goals mm -hmm. and meet those goals in their performance each year as part of their evaluation process. They are given, they are, you know, they work with their supervisor to create these specific, measurable, and attainable goals. How can we expect thousands of BPS staff members to do this process when the superintendent who sits at the top of all of that is not held to the same standard? And mm -hmm. let me tell you why here, Jill. Like the first goal the superintendent has is to significantly improve outcomes of students who are English learners by increasing the district's capacity to meet the needs of English learners. And there's a sub goal here, which is making progress. And it says increase progress towards English language proficiency as measured by access on the ELL's exam. And then it says data to be released in October of 21. So there's no data. Well, that's last month. And we're in November. Right. But there's no baseline data. Right. And not only is there no baseline data, there's no goal set right. to say this is what we should achieve in 2021-22 school year. Right. Just interesting um, that no one asked that question. Given Literally, no measurability. So yeah. here's another goal. Um, reduce the proportion of students who are chronically absent. And it says the actual number is 30% in school year 2021. And then there's no, there's no goal. Hmm. Right. So I don't even know. Like reduce the proportion of students. I don't know what that means. Right. Reduce the proportion of students who are chronically absent. And there is, if you maybe if you reduce it by 1% or a tenth of a percent. By any percent. By any percent, you've, yeah. you've achieved that goal. Again, right. no measurability. Right. I can go on. There's five There's right. five main goals and multiple sub-goals. Right. None of them are measurable. Right. None of them. And we have no idea if they're attainable. They're definitely not specific enough. Right. Um, this is really just, I'm really frustrated with the school committee 
that their key job is performance evaluation and setting standards and setting goals with the superintendent. And they ignored one of their most important jobs. Yeah. That must be disappointing for the rest of the district. Well, then we moved on to two reports of the evening. The first was about air quality. And there were two drivers in particular, COVID-19 safety and the fact that 20% of students in BPS suffer from asthma, including the fact that the buildings are very old and that a lot of this work hasn't been done for decades. And it sounds like the district is making progress installing air filters and air quality sensors. They have a pretty detailed plan and they'll be able to get even more specific as all of the elements of this are completed. Student Representative Tiffany Lau had this comment about the lack of consistency around air quality and safety measures in school today. I would really like to push for kind of a guideline for teachers on like windows and how to like manage the settings on like windows and like fans and all that, because kind of like how Ms. LaPera said about her kid, uh, I go to a school where some of the teachers put the windows all up and some of them have them all shut and the room feels like it's 70 degrees. So like having to like wear like a heavy coat to one classroom and then taking it all off in another, it's really frustrating sometimes. And then just like not being comfortable in the setting, like where we want to learn and like be socializing, especially after the COVID, like no matter what kids want to be at school right now to socialize. So like I feel like the comfortability of our students should be prioritized, but also like safety as well. Later in the meeting, we also heard that clean water remains an issue. Here's the superintendent. We send our children to school buildings, 60% of them built before 1940, um, many of them without clean water. And um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. Wow, that's, that's kind of concerning about the school water. Jill, this goes back to having a master plan. This work is all reactive, and it isn't clear what needs to be done tactically today to ensure every school is safe for our kids. Totally agree. The last presentation of the meeting was about academic vision. Ross, what is Drew Eccleson's team trying to accomplish? So, Jill, uh, look, uh, this presentation, I encourage everybody to take a look at it, and we'll post the presentation to the blog. It's hard to disagree with anything that's in this presentation. No, yeah. Uh, there's a slides, lot of, The slides are actually very clear. Very clear. Yeah. Um, but let me read you just a short excerpt from the presentation. We also want to provide a model for what ambitious instruction can look like for all content areas, as well as a fully actualized, the multi-tier system of support with high quality universal instructions at tier one instruction, and then the interventions in tier two and tier three that provide access to grade level content within an inclusive environment as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So here's what the presentation was all about. And that's just a, a quick example. There is a lot of education jargon, a lot of action words, a lot of high inference, a lot of abstract words in this presentation. And so that's what makes it easy to be like, yeah, that sounds good. There, you know, this, this word or these, this phrase, ambitious instruction, ambitious instruction and learning, ambitious teaching and learning mm. was mentioned over and over again. I like the word ambitious. I, I kind of, it like, that's a good word. I have no idea what it means in this context, right. you know? So like if you're walking around the district to thousands of classrooms, what does ambitious teaching mean? Right. You know, and so it, that that's what's hard to understand. Like it's easy to agree like, yeah, that sounds good. We're all thirsty for an academic vision and for a plan. We just kind of need to understand what it actually means. Well, and there was the point about every student should be uh, taught grade level material. 
right? Yeah. And it's, I don't know why that's not contextually the center of the conversation, right? Because given that, kids may have learning disabilities, kids may be new to this country, kids may only be able to learn in, you know, their native language or learn best in their native language. There's all of these other constructs, right, then we have to address in order to teach kids grade level material. But we didn't hear any conversation about that. What we do know, Jill, is the most impactful thing for a child's education is a great teacher. Right. And really what we need to hear is how do we support those great teachers in every classroom? Mm. And if I was a teacher last night, I would kind of be like, I think I'm doing a pretty good job of ambitious teaching and learning. Um, I'm not sure what you expect of me, though. Like, I'm not sure what you're saying. I think we have to really unpack this theory of action because right Mm. now we see a central office that is using ESSER money and outside money to build more and more supervisory positions that will, we think, try to impact teaching and learning in every classroom in our city. And that's a real that's a real question, right? What what do we what does a central office do? Can central office actually have an impact on teaching on every teacher, right. on every student? Or is it do we give the tools and resources to every school to do that work? And I think what we saw last night was if we unpack sort of the theory of action from Dr. Eccleson and the academic team, it sounds like they want to lead much of this work at the central level right. and have the, that impact on teaching and learning every classroom. That's something that should be discussed over the coming months because that's a big strategy and a very expensive strategy too. If we're building up a, a big central office, when those ESSER funds go away, how will that work be sustained over time? Right. And they, they did talk about, isn't this a massive transition from something that exists today to, to this what they're envisioning? They talked about a massive transition. It wasn't clear what that transition was. They didn't right. articulate it. But it very well may be a transition from, you know, quote unquote, autonomy or autonomous schools to a more centralized school system. Yeah. That is the case. Uh, we got to get m- much better than saying words like ambitious teaching and learning and get much much more exact about Very that. Very granular, yeah. Well, it sounds like there that is a, that was an initial presentation and there's a lot more work to do including meetings with the public and meetings with students and teachers and principals before it kind of really gets nailed down. Yeah, it's going to be a 10-year plan. That's a big plan. That's what they said. So then the meeting ended with a call for new business. Mr. DeRuggio reiterated the persistent request for the data and simulation behind the new exam school admissions policy. And Ms. LaPera seconded this request. And then Hardin Coleman recommended a strategy for approaching all of the issues that have been put on the table for the past several months. And so I know in my world, we talk about doing a master campus plan. And it's a, it's a 10 year plan and you go to every building and there are people who do that consciously for a living. And I don't think we've ever engaged in it that way. Russ, Hardin Coleman is echoing requests from last week and this week for a comprehensive plan to proceed strategic decisions about the district. And then the superintendent responded. Uh, we've been attempting to do that. We do um, currently have an RFP out where we are going to ask for external help to do exactly what you said. So there's an RFP. Yes. The superintendent said there's a request for proposal out there for some sort. We think it may be a master plan plan, or a, a, a build BPS or something, some facility plan. However, we checked this morning and there's not yet an RFP posted, but we will post to the city's bid site so everyone can check to see when the RFP will be posted, but it's not 
it's not. Not there yet. Okay. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking. First of all, what is the long-term plan for Boston Public Schools school buildings? Is there an RFP to create a campus master plan? Will the system move forward with short-term plans for long-term problems? And what is the quality guarantee? And when will it be implemented? And last night, again, we heard from the public asking for simulation data as well as school committee members. So will the school committee members ever receive the exam school simulation data they've been requesting for meeting after meeting? Or will the superintendent's team continue to ignore their demands? There was a mention of ESSER funds, but nothing specific. And so we're still wondering what is happening with ESSER funding. The application date for the new and largest round of funding has come and gone. What is BPS proposing to do with the funding? What are they going to do with the funding? We'd love to hear an update. And of course, there are ways to engage and get involved. Testify at the next school committee meeting on November 17th and share your thoughts about how to address the issues facing your school. Reach out to the new mayor, Mayor Wu, and new city councilors to discuss your priorities for BPS. And lastly, sign up for our email list at shawfoundation.org to provide feedback on this podcast, receive updates on our work, and be notified when new podcast episodes are available. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.